This isn't your grandma's cancer show. Not your grandma's cancer show. Hi, I'm Tatum Duroc, and today we're talking about... Um, hold on, let me look at my notes. Um, brain fog. Yeah, if you do that 50,000 times a day, you know <laughs> what we're talking about today. And actually, what I've learned getting ready for this episode is that more people with cancer have brain fog than don't. Like, Macmillan did a survey, and it was like nearly 80% of us have a cancer-related brain fog. But I felt so alone with it. And so what we've done is we've got two amazing experts with us today. We've got Tamsin Langley. And I I took a second there because I'm like, oh, no, did I say that right? And did you see me look down at my notes? (laughs) I'm like, I think I've got it. I think I've got it. Did I have it? Um, And she is an occupational therapist and she is joined by Sarah Stapleton. And um, both of them, well, they've described themselves as women on a mission to raise awareness about this. So Tamsin and Sarah, thank you so much for being on this um, episode. And Tamsin, can you tell me a little bit about how you got into brain fogginess? Like, what's your background? How, How did you arrive here? Oh, thank you uh, so much for having us. Um, so basically, at the Royal Marsden, we, as an occupational therapist, um, we look at um, how um, sort of treatment and the cancer impacts function. And obviously, over time, we, what we realised was that there was this gap in the service as we saw more and more patients who were explaining that they were experiencing this brain fogginess that was impacting their activities of daily living. So that's anything from going back to work to their roles as a mother or just being able to go out and socialize with friends and finding that actually they sort of um, didn't want to socialize anymore because they were forgetting people's names at parties. They weren't able to follow threads of conversation over dinner parties. Um, And so we realized that that was a real area Um, that we weren't addressing. Um, So I ended up doing a fellowship and um, going around the world for a few months, which was absolutely amazing, meeting the top researchers across the globe to see what interventions there were out there. Um, And since then, and with the wonderful help from the Royal Marsden um, Cancer Charity, they've been able to help fund um, a post where we now provide a programme for patients who are experiencing cancer-related cognitive impairment. Amazing. Amazing. Oh, my God. So we're going to get the scoop on brain fog and some strategies. I mean, I'm, I'm getting more and more excited by the moment. And Sarah, can you tell me a little bit about your background and perhaps what is brain fog? Like, what is going on in our brains? Like, have the neural pathways been rearranged? Thanks, Tatum. So um, my name is Sarah. I'm a nurse researcher. I work at the Royal Marsden as well. And my background's in clinical trials. So I worked as a nurse for many years, caring for patients um, on experimental treatments of the more new and novel types of anti-cancer treatments. Um, And over time, we noticed that 
um, some of the patients were experiencing cognitive changes whilst on these newer therapies. So we know a lot about chemotherapy-related cognitive changes, but not so much about the new targeted treatments and immunotherapies. Um, so I was lucky enough to get a fellowship with the Cancer Research UK, and my research focuses on the cognitive effects of some of these new anti-cancer ag agents um, and the impact that these have on the lives of patients with cancer. So what is chemo brain or cognitive um, impairment? So a good place to start is to define cognitive function. Um, simply put, it's our ability to think and it involves processes of memory, language, attention, planning tasks and multitasking and sometimes how we respond in certain situations. And when it works well, I don't think we really notice it, but when even small declines happen, it can really have a big impact on everyday life. So cancer-related cognitive impairment uh, is experienced by, as you said, a significant number of people living with cancer. Up to 80% of patients report having some cognitive changes on or during treatment and can present with declines in any or all of the areas described. So people with the problem describe feelings of brain fog, memory changes, difficulty in finding the right words sometimes, lack of concentration or a slowness uh, in thought or clarity of thought. And we're really trying to get away from using the term chemo brain, as research has shown over recent years, that it's not just the chemotherapy that causes cognitive changes, right. though it certainly does make it worse. <clears throat> but for most people with cancer, the drivers of cognitive decline are multifactorial. So a more accurate term is cancer-related cognitive impairment. As, and we know that actually about 30% of patients have cognitive decline prior to starting treatments when compared to people without cancer. So this suggests that there is a pathological process that's happening in the growth of cancer that contributes to this. Oh, that's, that's quite intriguing because I think that a lot of, I mean, there's a lot of misinformation around there, but that, you know, I think a lot of people kind of put it down to stress. You know, mm -hmm. like it's the stress of having cancer, but the idea that actually it goes beyond that, like there's other things at work. Yeah, yeah. So um, in the case of cancer-related cognitive impairment, there are several factors that can cause or contribute. So inflammation is a biological response that is activated both with the growth of cancer and with cancer treatments. And this leads to increased levels of circulating inflammatory markers, which are shown to negatively affect some cognitive processes. Uh, the blood-brain barrier can be affected in cancer, and this means that these inflammatory markers and certain treatments for cancer can directly affect the brain. Some people have certain genetic predispositions to developing cognitive decline, so they may be more at risk during this time. And all of the treatments that we use to treat cancer can cause decline in some way. It's like a decline soup, isn't it? it like is. It's just it this is. murky, like how on earth you hang on to your brain function when you're having to go through all of that is kind of incredible. I mean, how like any of us remember our names is actually you know, kind of it should be celebrated. Because I think that that's the thing is that, you know, um, I know for myself, I had quite a lot of cognitive issues that came up, um, aphasia, so not remembering words. I developed a stammer um, and the, there was, you know, other things as well. And they actually stopped 
um, some of my treatment because it was getting so bad. But my oncologist at the time was like, oh, I think it might also be menopause. So like, so you can have menopause that gives you that. You can have, you know, I, I know we're moving away from chemo brain, but this idea that like during chemo that that can be, you know, one of the factors. And then, you know, so many people then have fatigue on top of it. So is there other different types of brain fog? Like, can you look at something and go, okay, that's a menopause brain fog, that's a chronic fatigue brain fog, that's caused by inflammatory markers, or is it just like it's it's all kind of one big amorphous? Um, I, I think yes. I think it's multi multifactorial as well as the kind of physiological processes that are happening. As you say, fatigue, depression, and anxiety and stress all contribute and compound the compound the issue. I think in terms of distinguishing between menopausal brain fog and cancer-related brain fog, they present in very similar ways. So there's not one area that's often affected. It's quite diffuse across the mm. different domains of cognitive function. I guess the the differences are the causes of that. I mean, what's interesting about the menopausal um, brain fog is um, that's likely caused by low estrogen levels affecting a certain part of the brain that, that's impacted in memory. But for our patients with cancer, um, they're also experiencing um, forced menopause by right. some of the treatments, yep. um, particularly patients with breast cancer and ovarian cancer and, and for men with prostate cancer as well. So you almost get a double whammy of the menopausal um, forced brain symptoms alongside all these other contributing factors from the cancer and its treatment. Yeah, that, that's given, given me a lot to think about. Um, and actually, you know, um, you know, I said it, it's kind of amazing to remember anything during that time, but it's also a time where you have to hold so much in your brain. You have to hold all your appointments, all your medications, you know, all your, like no one ever talks about how much paperwork that also needs to get done and you're managing your sickness and your symptoms. And I mean, it can just really pile um, on and on. So um, Tamsin, can I ask you, like, what is kind of a spectrum of like from like a mild case of brain fog to an extreme case of brain fog? Um, well, I mean, it, in this sort of medical th- sort of terminology, we say it's sort of mild to moderate in, in its presentation, but that can, within that, it can have a massive impact on an individual's life. And it's very subjective for, for everybody. Um, we had um, a patient that was with us who was a mother to a child who was epileptic. And so for her, she went out into the woods one day to play um, and realized that she'd forgot her child's EpiPen. And you know, we can all be very forgetful at times, but actually these sorts of things you know, can be catastrophic. Yeah. If, you know, and it means that that sort of responsibility and concern, and it means that people lack confidence in what they do. Um, and people, again, their roles with return to work, they then end up having to sort of take more time off, as you mentioned, with the fatigue side of things. Um, or they might find that actually their job roles become too sort of cognitively demanding, that actually they then change to jobs that maybe they're not quite so passionate about. So it's about how much it impacts an individual's quality of life as well. And that's 
so important that we obviously try and maintain um, an individual's quality of life sort of post-treatment or during, you know, living with and beyond treatment, basically. Yeah, and these things are just either quite easily dismissed. Um, Like I've definitely looked up on, um, you know, some tips and strategies of how to deal with brain fog. And they seem to be written for people who are in retirement. And that's not to say, again, like that that it can have really big ramifications. But for Shine's demographic of people in their 20s, 30s and 40s, like that thing of you might be, you know, at university, you might be um, hitting your career stride. And as you mentioned, Hamzin, like being a parent, like those kinds of responsibilities, that's more than, you know, make sure that you write a list when you go to the supermarket, you know, that... It feels like some of the strategies are not even anywhere close to the things that people are experiencing, especially when they're younger and they're so used to um, being able to, you know, either multitask, have a lot of responsibility. So they're they're in that kind of that prime of life. Um, and then suddenly something as simple as, you know, going on a date and you realize you have no idea what that person across from you's name is. You know? yeah. I think that's the thing is, is we, it's, there are different, there are lots of different approaches that, and all of which should be used at the same time. So when we think about it, we want to think of a, a multifactorial approach. And I think the thing is, is people are very resistant to using things like compensatory strategies, especially when you're younger, because you sort of think, well, I shouldn't have to write right. things down. Like you mentioned, you know, it's, you know, you associate that more with sort of forgetfulness in retirement age, whereas actually we do it in our, our everyday lives you know, before cancer treatment, we all use our phones to be able to book in appointments or, you know, put in a put in that date that you were talking about, remembering which day that you're meant to meet that person and where you're meant to meet that person. But it becomes um, so much more um, when you sort of have to rely on it, on it, patients sort of really feel that, oh my, oh my goodness, like this is something that, you know, I really have to rely on now. And, and it becomes a negative thing when actually it's really a part of our everyday society. Um, and actually research shows that using compensatory strategies as well as rehabilitatory strategies are is, is the most effective approach because you'll be able to get achieve what you want in a shorter space of time um, and also enhance your quality of life because you're using both strategies. Um, but it's also worth thinking about actually the impact of you know, how your mind and body works in relation to cognition. So as Sarah said, um, mood, stress, um, sleep, um, all impact our cognition. So um, definitely on our course, we look at the factors that we can control. So we're talking about controlling the controllable. So whether it's the effects of stress, mood, exercise, all of which we know have an impact on our cognition, sleep, um, and then we look at the different strategies to be able to um, hopefully improve or manage the symptoms of cancer-related cognitive impairment. Do you find that some people just think they're going crazy? Like they, 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 they're they convinced that they have early onset dementia. Is that something you're nodding? <laughs> yeah. yeah that's, that's a real common concern for, for patients and um, patients have often reported to me that they think they're getting dementia, early dementia, or that their cancer has spread to their brain as well. Yeah. That's a common fear, a fear of pro- fear of progression. And I guess that's part of the work that we're trying to do is 
by helping people understand that this is um, a, a treatment and cancer-related problem, that it is transient and for most people will get better. It just provides that reassurance that it's it's nothing much worse and that things aren't going to take a downward turn that is uh, progressive as well, because that's the other thing. This is not something that's degenerative. Um, it's something that happens usually for a space of time um, and then that will recover as the other lasting effects of treatment recover. Well, that that is incredibly reassuring. So that was going to be my next question was like, is it reversible? Like, do you have to basically think that um, that it's going to be that way for, you know, for the... Yeah, that, that, that's the good news. For most patients, it's reversible. And that was one of the important take-home messages that we wanted to give within this podcast that it is. For some people, a small number of people, there's lasting effects and they might need more intervention. But for most people, it does recover beyond treatment. I'm I'm really glad to hear that. Um, Sarah, <laughs> I want to tell you that there was one time, so I'm a, also a yoga teacher, so I taught a yoga class and I'd said my name at the beginning of class and taught the whole class and at the end someone came up to me and said, oh, um, what's your name again? And I answered, Sarah. For no good reason, I know, I know. No good reason whatsoever. There wasn't a Sarah around. I hadn't just heard that name. And someone was right behind her that knew what my real name was and they kind of pop their head up to the side like what are you talking about so I had to admit to her that's actually not correct Um, my name is Tatum and what was like this incredibly humiliating moment at that time like how do you actually forget your own name has liberated me ever since then because now when I forget other people's names I'm like yeah I've done it to myself you know and you people go oh I forget my own name but they haven't actually forgotten their own name right like they think that that's it's a there is a tangible difference because we're all forgetful but like you know when there's something that that's actually that one step beyond that cognitive kind of like there is something there that's like there's a barrier that wasn't there before so Tamsin how do you how do you communicate that to somebody else like you know how do you let them know actually like I'm you know although I've known you for 10 years I've just stammered over your name I've you know not done an introduction or you know, you're talking to me in a loud restaurant and I can't understand, I can't follow the conversation or, or, or however, you know, it's manifesting for you. Like, is there a way that you can tell people so that they understand why you're behaving in a way that's a little bit different than you did before? Um, well, I think I, part of the thing is, is, as healthcare professionals, we need to be better at talking about it with our patients because I think the one thing that um, patients can be very aware of are the side effects of treatment so when you think about you know chemotherapy or radiotherapy you know there are certain side effects that you would expect so things like hair loss nausea come to mind whereas you know you little to no no one would expect that you would have this brain fog so I think we need to start to have that conversation with our patients to normalize it and then we can and then 
as you know as a society we can sort of break down those sort of stigmas or barriers um and hopefully you know we'll start a little bit here at the podcast to help normalize that conversation and just being able to explain what it is and and what they're experiencing um so that beyond that um people then can go on to explain it to friends partners their colleagues um and then we can just start to normalize normalize the subject really yeah I think that's the that's the thing, and I know there's a move away from chemo brain, but it was like such a succinct little statement to be able to go, oh, sorry, I have chemo brain, or you know, I I, I can't handle that today, I'm overwhelmed, or whatever, a chemo brain. Um, yeah. Do you have any other like, um, what what is its technical term now? I think the technical term that we like to use is is cancer related cognitive impairment, which is. A complete mouthful, yeah. and if you find something that was a, a little less wordy, that would be great. Um, <laughs> but I think what we want to do with that is be able to sort of encompass the whole sort of terminology when it comes to uh, sort of all areas, basically when it comes to cognition. So as Sarah said, it's multifactorial. So we don't want to pigeonhole it as you know just what chemotherapy. Yeah has done you know there are so many different areas like as you as you mentioned with the menopause and with fatigue all of these things are going to have an impact on your cognition so we when we talk about it we want to talk about it as a very umbrella term yeah we just need some snappy terms for it don't we (laughs) I was trying to think of like what the initials are it was like CI cancer Uh, what was it? C I C I can't even remember the initials. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. cancer related impairment. I yeah, it, you know. So anyone listening, if you want to like send in, yeah. Please send in your ideas, because <laughs> I think that there is something about um, about the ability to communicate it that and the normalizing it, um, because. It does really make a difference between, you know, and we are going to get on to work a little bit more because I'm I'm really interested in that. But like kind of staying with that, it it impacts your relationships, doesn't it? So have you found um, that people have talked about it, you know, affecting their marriage or their partners or their relationships with their best friends or their roommates or... Um, is there anything that that you've you've noticed with that? Um, I'm I'm just coming towards the end of my research study, and part of that study was interviewing patients about the impact on their lives. And for most part, the patients that the patients' relationships that had been affected were more distant relations, so work colleagues, people that they didn't know so well. It was much more comfortable to discuss the symptom and deal with it at home with very close relatives and and partners. It did sometimes cause friction um, in terms of frustration um, and uh, with partners. Um, but you know one one patient um, told me a story about you know difficulty with processing speed and finding the right word mm-hmm. um, and he'd attended his local pub quiz every week for many years with a group of very old friends Um, but he just couldn't keep up with conversations in a group he was fine one-to-one 
And so despite functioning okay at work and at home, he then had to stop doing something that he'd done for many years and less distanced him from his friends. Um, he couldn't, he wasn't one of the group anymore. Um, so these are the types of stories that we're hearing about that even small, small changes can have a big impact on quality of life. Um, so for this man, yeah, it definitely affected relationships and we hear similar stories to that, that um, all the time really yeah and I, I can I can see Tamsin's nodding um have you had stories that sort of echo that yeah absolutely time and time again we hear sort of um roles whether it's you know as a as a mother or, or with their partners saying that their partners don't really necessarily understand um or the, there's first as Sarah said there's frustration in just the little things because they see it more as just um absent-mindedness when it, it's actually much much more than that and that creates friction you know in a in already you know stressful day um you know and sort of sort of the day-to-day -day activities that we sort of just get on with every single day become much more challenging with CRCI um, and much more effortful. So um, we really, again, it's all about discussing it with, you know, opening that conversation, understanding, you know, and for family members, whether it's part partners or, you know, children or friends, you know, colleagues, um, understanding what it is and yeah. um, what they can also do to be able to support you. Because I think there's a, an element of shock. I mean, I know for me, what I was doing when I was diagnosed was I was, um, I was um, hosting online talk shows so I was a chatterbox you know I was known for that I was acting I was doing like a one woman you know I did shows I did um, personal narrative storytelling so I was constantly in front of people constantly talking and the idea that I couldn't name something that I couldn't speak in the way that I had before had people so shocked that then they teased me not in a mean like oh I'm gonna but they were just like <laughs> like what are you doing like come on spit it out like because I developed that that stammer and that kind of hesitation and you know it, it, the quizzical looks you know like what as if you're doing it on purpose and because it is such a departure from what you were doing before that I think actually sometimes the people closest to you have the hardest time with you not being the person that you were and for you it must really knock your confidence because although like you said it's not it's you know it's just these sort of slightly jokey comments every once in a while but you know over time those things are definitely gonna I imagine have a huge impact on on your confidence yeah um and your abilities which you know for someone else it is just the sort of a, a light joke but for you over time it is going to knock that confidence yeah. I, I imagine yeah and, and you know kind of going into the work world you know um it, it, people that have cancer earlier in life have a you know a decline in in their earnings and and although I appreciate that that's for many many different reasons I do think that one of the things that hasn't been asked of people is about you know their cognitive abilities and the ability to do their job um, and you know do you other strategies can you still go back to the work that you were doing before the work that you love even if your brain isn't working at the same rate that it was. 
Um, yes, absolutely. I mean, it may mean that obviously that you might need to make adjustments, um, whether it's putting in in strategies or just looking at, you know, rehabilitation techniques and changing your environment, all of these things. And, you know, an occupational therapist can help you with all of that. And then obviously liaising with, you know, your work and being able to sort of break down the challenges and where your strengths and, you know, where the areas that you're struggling with and to be able to work around that. Um, and, you know, from what, it, on a positive note, from from the um, people who've been through the Emerging from the Hayes program, we, we get a, a few bits of feedback every yeah. once in a while. And it's been really lovely. We've had a number of people return to work and one's even started up her own business, which is absolutely fantastic. And I think the sort of take home is with a, with a lot of them, they've said, actually, you know, they don't beat themselves up so much about it. Yeah. They know that sometimes there are going to be these moments of sort of brain fogginess, if you want to call it that. Um, but we all do in every everyday society. And whereas before they put so much pressure on themselves, now they sort of say, right, well, I've got the right tools and strategies to be able to navigate my way past this. And it may mean that I need to adapt certain things to be able to get to the same goal, but I can still get there. Okay, so... I have to hear about what these tools are. <laughs> like, what are these strategies? How can I make my brain work better? <laughs> Where do you begin with them? Every, I think everybody's different. So, I mean, it depends on the diff, you know, on each person, on each different situation. But I think what we again, what we want to do is we want to first look at the education around it. So, being able to understand what's going on in your brain when you're stressed, what happens, and why does that mean that it changes your cognition? You know, what happens when you know you know, you're feeling low and what does that mean for your cognition? And everybody's going to be different. So for some, so for some people, it's going to be more fatigue related for other people, it might be more stress related. Um, and so it's about taking the strategies that work for you or, you know, are specific to your needs and then putting those in place. So again, we, education is obviously key and then adapting it to around your needs and where you find that you struggle the most, but then also it's looking at, compensatory strategies as well as rehabilitatory strategies again so things like looking at repetition looking at and also engaging in activities that you enjoy because we know that when you in, engage in something that's cognitively challenging if you enjoy it say learning a uh, new, new musical instrument you're going to be more likely to a engage in the task at hand and b attend to it so a lot of people find oh you know my attention's poor but actually if you're, you know, say learning a new instrument that you're looking forward to learning, you're going to be more likely to attend to it for longer than something, say, doing, you know, a work spreadsheet. Um, so it's about engaging, actually, in the things that you do enjoy as well. It shouldn't always be hard work um, when it comes to the rehabilitation side of things. It sounds a little bit like play. Like, yeah, like actually yeah. kind of going back to the beginning where we all started, right? Like learning, yeah. relearning again is like bringing uh, that sense of playfulness back in and doing things that we enjoy and like maybe giving something a go that yeah. seems a bit out of reach. Yeah. And it's also going to, it's also going to give that sense of like achievement because if you sort of realize, oh, actually I have learned 
French or, you know, I've, you know, I've remembered those five words or I've done this, you're going to go, oh, actually, no, I can do this. I can see that I, you know, I can remember those things I can learn. But it's also, again, it's learning, looking at the sort of mood and body element as well. So it's really worth focusing on, you know, if, if stress is really impacting you, that um, you can put in those strategies such as sort of mindfulness or meditation to be able to help manage the everyday. Because we know that stress hormones and adrenaline can be a good thing in increasing arousal and attention. However, there's that tipping point when stress becomes so high that it actually reduces our skill efficiency. So we then become overwhelmed we freeze we become stuck and we what we want to do is be able to find that sweet spot where you can still be challenged but not so overwhelmed that you're going to freeze so again we're looking at different compensate or you know different strategies such as sort of mindfulness or um meditation relaxation that might you know yoga is absolutely fantastic as well um just to help with things like stress to help with mood and obviously there's a lot of now research coming out about um the impacts of exercise and how that can also improve our thinking skills as well. One of the things that I, um, so I, I quite like spotting stress um, responses, like in TV shows and stuff. And I know, I know I'm a bit of a geek about this, right? So my favorite place is the first round of MasterChef Professionals. Um, when you've got these these professionals that are coming in to do a task, you know, that they, they don't know what they're going to do. So they've got no preparation for it. And, you know, it might be something that they did when they were at, at college. So that could be 20 years ago. And they come in and all the different you see them. You know, you see everything from the blotchy neck to the talking really quickly to their eyes darting around and then they go ahead and burn toast. And I always think about that. That's when adrenaline has gone so high that you've tipped over and actually they walk out in a stupor going, I've never put butter and you know yeah. on a melon before I don't know why I did that like you know they yeah. make really crazy decisions because of that really high adrenaline and I think that we don't necessarily understand just how much that tipping point between focus and being in the zone and mm. actually going way over and you know buttering a melon I don't know. <laughs> that's, a, that's a great analogy. And it, yeah, it's a really lovely visual because that's exactly it. You know, what we don't want is to be able to go to that tipping point where you're doing these things and it's about to getting to that point and going, right, okay, I can feel myself getting stressed. I, I am aware that this is, I'm getting to that tipping point and putting in strategies to be able to calm down, get, you know, get your refocus again and to get that attention and that'll then help with the memory and, the attention and the word finding difficulties you know sometimes you know when you get flushed and you can't remember a word the more stressed out the, the more you know you can't remember that word and then you'll say all right I can't you know it's fine I'll come back to it and then 20 minutes later when you're not thinking about it that word will pop straight yeah. back into your head again it's you know it's thinking about those sorts of things as well one of the things that I did that um, really helped me was I did an improv class 
Um, so it was this idea of like kind of going back to that sense of play and like doing like practicing in a place where there's a sense of enjoyment and it doesn't really matter if you don't remember something but it's um, so when I couldn't remember a word I would go ahead and like this little part of my brain would be describe it you know Mm. like go for the the nearest adjacent word like act it do a sign for it like think of these other creative ways because there's nothing worse like I've stood in front of a yoga class and 30 people in a position and I'm like extend your and I'm looking at this limb in front of me and I know it has three letters and I have no idea it is like just this haze and I cannot access, and I think it starts with the beginning of the alphabet, but I cannot say this word. And you've got all these people looking at you, and you should, you know, (laughs) you're standing there as a teacher, and then it's like, okay, what's the nearest thing I can describe? Fingers, extend your fingers, you know? (laughs) And, but you don't want to you don't want to necessarily do that in a high pressure situation. You want to kind of have a space to practice workarounds when you're in a low stress situation. So, yeah. Yeah. So do do you find other people doing things like that? Like they're finding, like once they realize what they're working with and they're finding their own kind of creative ways around. Yeah. Absolutely. And it's, and it's really wonderful. Like, I mean, that's a perfect example of, of finding a compensatory strategy using, you know, workarounds, we like to call them as well. Um, and, and the thing is, is for a lot of people, you know, you, they won't even notice that you would have, have have that moment because you would have found another word that works just as well. But for us, that's going through it, you think, well, everyone will know. But I think in, the other thing is, is we also put a lot of pressure on ourselves. You know, there's that, um, you know, we tend to sort of think um, there's that idea that, you know, before the cancer, everything was perfect. I never had cognitive problems. But, you know, I think for, for every one of us, every single day, we have those moments where, you know, we have word finding difficulties and we use those workarounds as well. It's just highlighted so much more with the cognitive impairment because you it sort of really, you know, you can really feel it a lot more and it exacerbates that, that issue. Yeah. Yeah, and it becomes that much more embarrassing, doesn't it? When, yeah, because of that that kind of focus. So, um, so Sarah, you had talked about this. You know, I know you were in research. Is there more research being done into this area? Yeah, absolutely. So, um, lots of research has been done um, relating to chemotherapy, and um, we know that we know quite a lot about chemotherapy causes um, of cognitive impairment Um, but there's lots of room for more work to be done particularly with the newer treatments so my research is looking at um, how some of the drugs tested in early clinical trials um, can impact cognitive function and in, in you know the newer targeted treatments and immunotherapies in many ways um, have less side effects than the than the traditional cytotoxic chemotherapies that are fairly heavy duty but there are some reasons why they potentially the newer drugs could cause cognitive impairment um so yeah so there's lots of room for research to look at how these new drugs work and how they may cause problems but also how we can assess cognitive function better in patients because that's also a very difficult task Mm. to achieve Um, so traditionally 
cognitive assessments um, come from a, a neuroscience background, a neuropsychology background. And these are tests that are conducted with patients that might have had brain injuries or other other um, uh, kind of significant brain diseases or neurological conditions. And some of them work well in patients with cancer. But um, again, some of them, because the, some of the symptoms are are less obvious and, and more subtle, um, there's lots of work to be done in better ways to assess um, cognitive impairment for people with cancer. A lot of what we do now is asking the patient themselves. So the tests are objective measures, psychometric tests, and actually they don't often match what the patient's saying is happening to them. So again, there's lots of room for work towards some kind of patient-reported outcome measures. Yeah, I was about to say, like, right now, are they kind of relying on self-reporting? Mm-hmm. Yeah. So if someone is listening to this right now and, you know, they've they've maybe felt alone, they've maybe felt challenged at work, they've maybe felt really disheartened or, you know, they've felt a disconnect from friends or partners or anything, like, is there something that you would say is, like, a first step um, for them to kind of reframe how they think about this impact on their lives? Really, it's about starting that conversation. And a lot of research shows that just the acknowledgement of the symptom is actually therapeutic in itself. So people um, having their symptoms validated um, and knowing that it's actually a real problem and that other people are experiencing it can be the first step towards feeling better and planning and doing something about it. Um, but again, a lot of what we're finding out is that very few conversations are happening between patients with cancer on treatment and their clinicians and their specialist nursing teams. Um, so what we would like to get across today again is that if you're concerned about your cognitive function and that it's been impacted by the treatment then please have that discussion with your medical teams because there is something that can be done about it. What's some of the things that can be done? Sarah you go ahead first and then I'll follow. (laughs) Yeah I was going to to say really that the the education surrounding it um, I guess it's about different levels of intervention so it's about some simple advice about self-management strategies uh, but some people might need a more intense level of intervention and that might be something like referral to someone like Tamsin for um, the psychoeducational program um, or some more tailored uh, management strategies for that person. Tamsin, you 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 can yeah absolutely you answered all my questions I'll answer the question perfectly there so yeah absolutely um definitely to talk to sort of the medical team about it and then they can refer to whether it's a you know it's an occupational therapist or you know it might be that they pick up it that you know it it might be that it's more stress related and that you know there are maybe other interventions that are first line that need to be addressed or mood related that are first line before um that you know, may resolve on their own um, with other interventions before you come through to an occupational therapist or come through to the, the sort of a, a program like the Emerging from the Hayes program. Um, I think, you know, for any patients of the Marsden out there, you know, they are there is this service out there, but unfortunately, not every hospital has that yet. Um, 
But I know that Maggie's um, Cancer Charity in West London, I think they're looking to be able to develop their own programme by the end of the year as well for anyone is also interested and feels that that would be helpful yes. and um myself and sarah will be um producing some some more information hopefully that will be available um later in the year that um can be accessible to anyone where would that information be online or um it will be in the royal marsden um patient information library okay. but that can be accessed through the royal marsden website that's really cool. And so hopefully when we when the videos are created and um, uploaded, we will be putting the information out on the Royal Marsden Twitter feed. Fabulous. Your eye out for that. <laughs> yeah, I've found that you know that that normalization of it it's you know you talked about that having a therapeutic effect and people coming to shine that's one of the things that is just so lovely is that you meet this new group of people and there is zero expectation to remember anyone's name like it's just it's everyone's so relaxed with that um and everyone gets it and actually having that time around other people and you know so many of our things have been on zoom recently so we obviously have like cheated with reading the names on the screen although every so often someone will come in using someone else's computer and that's when you realize that you actually don't remember their names Um, but it's so lovely that you can joke about that you know with everyone and everyone laughs because they understand you know and I think that laughter is just is so different and laughter is really really important within that we talk about that within you know within sort of the therapy element to it you know being able to love it you know it helps on various levels you know from mood to be able to that like that bonding with other people mm-hmm. um definitely within our groups um we see it time again you know that relief when people meet other people and they say oh I've, you know i did this i did this stupid thing or i did this silly thing and someone goes oh my god i did that last week and i yeah. didn't think that anyone else would be able to understand you know and it's you know people bonding within within that um and meeting other people um who are experiencing the same thing so whether it's you know finding you know online groups or you know books about it you know there's so there is information out there unfortunately not not as much as we'd like but hopefully we're getting there well, it sounds like you you really are on a mission to change this and so thank you very much um and in it what it sounds like and correct me if i haven't quite gotten all of this but if someone is experiencing that so maybe kind of reaching out to maybe other people that have it you know if it feels like it's getting worse or it's unmanageable it's like impacting their life but you know talking to their team seeing what potentially might be a pathway and then it seems out of the two pathways there's sort of a looking at whether it's stress and like I think there's a lot of um again kind of people think like if someone says, oh, it's stress, that it's somehow they're not doing it right, right? Like, oh, I guess I'm failing at handling this, you know, life-threatening illness. And, you know, we, we tend to think like we're going to give ourselves a break, but we don't. We we pile on the pressure that we should be perfect at it. But actually stress um, is also caused by that lack of sleep. And most people, I would say, post-cancer, like are not sleeping for any number of reasons, from temperature regulations to, you know, whatever it is that's like waking us up a thousand times during the night. And that stress is that accumulation of maybe medication on the body, that stress isn't 
you know, it can it, it comes under this umbrella, but it isn't like a sense of you're not doing it right. But actually, you know, it sounds like if that is increasing the fogginess, then it's like looking at those things. And if, you know, you are sleeping pretty well and you are exercising and your mood is pretty good and like all those things, then it's looking at the the strategies of self-management. Yeah, and they both go hand, they sort of both go hand in hand as well. Like you said, a lot of the strategy, you know, with this umbrella term, a lot of the strategies crossed over each other anyway. Um, so you're absolutely right when you say um, you can sort of hit the nail on the head when it comes to sort of, you know, one impacts the other. Mm. Um, so about looking at it is, as this umbrella term and, you know, the, all the different, you know, symptoms and these sort of effects um, that, you know, causes and effects um, and, you know, whether it's stress or fatigue or the fact that they're interlinked and looking at the different strategies for both to be able to sort of help. Brilliant. I think it's also important to add about stress that whilst, yes, it can impact the symptoms and make them worse, no one's expecting people to manage their stress levels to zero because going through cancer is the most stressful thing that will happen to you in your lifetime, hopefully. And, um, and it's perfectly normal to feel stressed and out of control yeah. and overwhelmed whilst going through cancer treatment and actually some time after as well, because that's often when it hits people, isn't it? Um, so I think we just need to also be mindful not to feel too much pressure to manage our own stress levels when we're going through this awful um, situation or, or a situation that can be awful. One of my favourite um, things is um, blame it on adrenaline. Like I like to blame everything on adrenaline. Like that wasn't me that got irritable. That was adrenaline that did that, you know, because actually our bandwidth do become shorter, you know, what we're able to tolerate and deal with. And, you know, sometimes that can be really frustrating. So I think it's nice to have an external thing to blame it on. And uh, I think adrenaline has a lot to answer for. <laughs> um, thank you so much to both of you um, for the work that you're doing and for coming here and sharing all your insight with us. Thank you, Tamsin. Thank you, Sarah. Thank you so much. Thanks for having us. And thank you to the wonderful radio facilities for recording and sponsoring our podcast. And thank you to all of you who are listening. If you like what you heard, you want more of it, and you want to make sure that other people also get a chance to hear it, we would love you to like, to subscribe. Basically, it bumps us up and more people can hear us. And if you have ideas for the podcast, by all means, send them in. My email address, I had to look down to see what my email address is. Yes, I have, these are my self-strategy, my self-management right here. It's tatum at shinecancersupport.org. And so you can email me if you have ideas, if you want to be a guest. Um, So thank you so much. Until next time, bye.